In Australia, two political parties have dominated our elections for decades. However, after the 2022 federal election, it was evident that the ground was shifting. Although the Liberal and National Party coalition lost the last election, the percentage share of first preference votes had fallen for both parties, following a much longer trend. As party membership continues to endure a historical decline, questions are raised as to the future of these essential actors in Australian democracy. Is it the wariness of the growing extremities of these political parties, or a broader decline in civic engagement? Have the passion of ideas abandoned our discourse, merely replaced with the popularity of political leaders? Can new values reverse this? There are many questions as to the future. To help us navigate them is James Walter, Professor Emeritus at Monash University. He was the former chair of political science there and has held many other distinguished positions at Griffith University and the University of London. Within James's broader interest in Australian politics and its history, he has long studied the leadership of Prime Ministers, the nature of our political debates, and the ideas which inhabit it. Welcome to today's uh, podcast. Um, I think we'll, we'll start off with a, a simple question. What makes uh, Australian political leadership so distinct? Uh, well, there are some ways in which it's not very distinct, and I think we have to keep that in mind. That is, leaders everywhere have become more significant as party support has dwindled away. People no longer have an ideological or philosophical attachment to a party. And so what the leader says, what the leader represents, uh, becomes all important. So that's one issue. But what's distinct, I think, two things. One is that Australia has a historic sort of uh, commitment to us a sort of centre liberal position. There are good reasons for this because in the colonial period, the only uh, agencies that had resources to do all the things that were needed to get a new economy going were uh, the colonial government. So there's a long tradition of government action not just to support individuals, but to support business and that sort of thing. Um, that's very unlike... The, the, the outcome is that we're less individualist as a society than, say, America. There's no sort of tradition of that sort in in America, um, despite the New Deal and so on. Um, so that's that's, I think, an important... Uh, an important distinction. This kind of decline of party membership. Why is this the case? Why are there less and less? Why is there less and less political and social engagement through parties like there maybe was fifty years ago? And the parties themselves are no longer the essential political force in democracy that once was. Well, there are there are a number of things that have caused it. I think partly it's just the sheer growth and diversification of society, but the sort of underlying problem has been that the mass parties of the past, that is, parties that had a a broad membership, did 
work because there was a sort there was, as I said earlier, a sort of a philosophical trend that that people were prepared to follow, that some people were prepared to follow. So on the one hand, in say the post Second World War period, you had Robert Menzies really espousing a pretty persuasive version of liberalism. The forgotten people's speeches were very famous, but it was a call out to people who seemed to have been forgotten in the pre-war period when, you know, all the battles were between the unions and the growing labour movement on the one hand and pretty monopoly business interests on the other. Um, and so he, he was quite clever in charting a course where he said, well, we, we put private enterprise and the individual first, but, you know, we were at state, where the state needs to, where the state solution is the best solution, we will do that. So we had the mixed economy where there was a mix of, you know, private enterprise, but also uh, corporations and agencies that were that were connected to government or funded by government, um, support for government airlines and that sort of thing. That's fairly important. The other important thing is that the Labor Party also, you know, there was a, a relatively large membership of unions. The unions supported the Labor Party, so they also drew people in to the party. But because they were large memberships, there was a diversity of views. It, it, they were more representative of the mainstream population in some respects than they are now. Why did that stop? Because the, um, on the one hand, there was a growing emphasis, particularly later in the 20th century, on what we now call neoliberalism, uh, which both parties adopted to some extent, but it was one that that broke down that sort of middle ground that Menzies, for example, had built up in a way. And secondly, as the certainly the coalition parties became more intent on that sort of measure, they took movements in labour market policy that, you know, really started to wear away unions and union membership. So that that's fallen dramatically. What is the role for political parties today now? Well, the role for political parties is, as it always has been, to try and find consensus or relatively consensus decisions to the big challenges that face us. Uh, you know, I'm sure each in their in their own way believe that that's what they're trying to do. But because leaders have become so much more significant, the the sort of idiosyncrasies of particular leaders, the, the particular skills or capacities of particular leaders have a much greater effect. And because they've dwindled, the true believer core of both parties is much more, in a sense, hard-line than it was in the past when they were genuinely mass parties. And so on each side, you can't get pre-selection unless you satisfy certain things, certain criteria. And yes, yeah, Sorry to interrupt. We just had an interview with Greg Barnes, who formerly was selected by the Liberal Party 
uh, for a seat in Tasmania. And when he'd expressed some some views, uh, I believe it was in regards to human rights in a in a publication, he was subsequently disendorsed by the Liberal Party as it was viewed as being against, let's say, the general party line. Do, do you think that would maybe reflect this kind of one growing ideological extremity of the party and its growing power and idiosyncrasy? A couple of years ago, there was a Senate inquiry that was a Senate committee, the Legislative, um, I've forgotten the name of it, the Legislative Affairs Committee, set up an inquiry um, into, you know, national identity, commitment to national ideals and so on. I've forgotten the, the title of it. But I was invited to attend one of the hearings and the um, the chair of the committee was Kim uh, Labor, the very prominent Labor figure. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm terrible with names, I forget. Anyway, let's put it this way. The chair of the committee was a very staunch Labor figure. The deputy chair was Amanda Stokes, no, no longer in Parliament, but a very, very sort of um, committed right-wing figure from the National Party, or at least from the Queensland LNP. And all of the people who'd been asked to come in were saying the difficulty you have, both both sides, the difficulty you have is that the views that you're now pushing are at odds with popular opinion. And, you know, pe- people are... People... In, there kept getting up and giving them the figures. These two said, try telling that to pre-selection committee. In other words, they could accept that there was this problem, but they knew that either you wouldn't get selected or you would face challenges to your endorsement if you took a line that was much more attuned to popular opinion because popular opinion wasn't reflected in the party's position. It seems like um, that there's an incentive structure for them to, you know, if if you're a member of this kind of uh, selection committee who will then, for the party, choose the candidate who would then go on to represent them in parliament if elected, there is an incentive for them to retain their power. It's a bit of a, a position where they want to retain their influence and therefore will only select people that reflect uh, and uh, validate their views. Yes, that that's certainly. I think that's certainly the case, and it's exacerbated too because of the the factionalisation of both parties. Um, where the faction, you know, the factions fight it out, but they are always the ones saying we represent the true soul of the party. Well, the true soul of the party, at least. The membership of both parties is old, white, and predominantly male. Um, it doesn't. It's not representative in a, in a sort of demographic sense of the population, but it's certainly not representative of of the the views that pollsters get when they ask questions about you know the big issues. What surprised me about looking into the role of political parties is the uh, the influence of, of factionalism and how. There's a huge amount of conflict uh, and disagreement within a party through these factions. 
Now, is this a feature from what you've implied that's new or that has always existed with any political party which would pretend to, to have a representative view of a wide variety of the Australian population? It's, I think it's certainly much more entrenched than it once was, although factions had always been a part of the Labor Party. But, I, but one of the things that I think is interesting is that the successful leaders have been able to contain that, and I think that has been the case on both sides. If we talk about examples, Bob Hawke was very successful Prime Minister because he let his ministers do their job. He didn't say, it all has to come from me. But the ministers, because they were given... They weren't given absolutely free reign. They couldn't just, you know, they had to get his approval. But it was a team effort, and the team effort then tends to uh, to to ameliorate the influence of the factions. It doesn't mean it goes away, but the, the in, internal party conflict is much, much less, and you don't get it in, in the Hawke government. You don't get it much in the Keating government. For, for listeners who are not so familiar with um, political factions, how would you introduce the idea? Uh, factions are subgroups within parties that really identify a particular position. For instance, just to look back at recent history, there's been a lot of conflict over climate change between the, the parties. It's been clear since about 2007 that most people wanted something done about climate change. But the coalition governments at that time could not reconcile their more moderate members, people who are closer to public opinion, with more hardline members who said this is going to wreck the economy. You know, it's, 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 it's all sort of put-up job, uh, we speak for small business, we speak for the people who, who uh, have other objectives. And, and Abbott, of course, built on that, but there was always that split, even within the coalition. That's just an example but I think the other thing I, I wanted to say, having talked about why Hawke was successful in overcome, overcoming that, was that John Howard was also very successful, and not quite in the same way. He achieved, over time, he achieved a remarkable dominance over the party. How did he do that? Because he continually travelled he never introduced a policy idea without explaining why and what it was and how it fitted with what he said were the Liberal values. So there was a very consistent picture of, I'm doing this, this is our agenda, and this is how it fits with Liberal values. But he went around the country, he visited branches, he listened to them and sat down with them. And... It got to a stage where, you know, towards the end, people said basically he owned the party. Um, that didn't mean he necessarily was doing, you know, stupid things. He was doing what, what, well, exactly what he said he would do. 
and and he said, yeah, and he's and so communication is really important. He was, you know, we think of the great sort of inspiring rhetoricians like Whitlam and and Keating, who were very powerful performers, but he he could speak in ways that were not, you know, not as charismatic but remarkably effective because, as he said in the end, you can like me or love me, but you know what I stand for. And 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 this then exerted a discipline on the party so that the factional sorts of issues were pretty much kept you know, at bay. And the remarkable thing was that while he was a sort of climate change sceptic, right at the end, Peter Shergold, who was then the Secretary of Prime Minister and Cabinet, was commissioned by the Prime Minister to do a report on um, what should be done and so on. And it came out in favour of an emissions trading scheme. And so Howard, even though he was reluctant, he took this to Cabinet Shergold, knowing that there was no point saying to sceptics, this is what the science says, instead said, this is a, these are the economic advantages we'll get. There are huge opportunities for us here. Uh, so it, he, he tailored the message to win them over. Cabinet supported it. They took it to the 2007 election. It wasn't until then Kevin Rudd gets in, had pushes also on the climate front, that Tony Abbott and the people who had always been sceptics, Howard's now gone, rally, and, you know, there's the, the battles. Eventually Brendan Nelson's replaced, finally Abbott's in place, and he, very, you know, he, he's a... A great oppositional figure, but not a great leader, uh, because apart from tearing down what Labor did, he had no alternative agenda of any of any substance. It's, it's surprising to see with Howard how, through his representation of that diversity within the party, had actually been an early, had taken consideration of what would have been maybe radical at the time proposals to to protect the environment and i mean for listeners it was ultimately under gillard that the carbon credit scheme was was implemented yes and yeah. opposed by and, tony abbott <laughs> very successful <laughs> but the, that's the variety part isn't it the yeah. um you, you've also mentioned the element of performance with regards to to keating and and, and whitlam I think many um, people outside of politics tend to see, you know, the whole machinations and uh, conduct of politicians as often being a bit phony. Uh, how important is performance to politics? Well, there are two elements of performance. One is people do judge you on what you do, what you say you'll do, and whether you deliver. That's an has you know, how do you perform as a government in meeting the promises that are made. But that one of the most important thing is that now that the leader speaks for the party, uh, that 
element of communication that was so important for, well, certainly for Keating when the reform agenda of the Hawke, Hawke government was playing out and then his own government, he was the sort of person who, who could sell this to the press gallery and through the press gallery to the public. People genuinely started to accept that, you know, there wasn't any alternative to these big reforms. Although some people were unhappy because they had they did have effects on communities, you know, as industries changed or closed, some communities were badly affected. So I'm not saying it was all sweetness and light. But that he was a, a sort of inspirational leader, if you like. Howard, on the other hand, he got a lot done in reforming the labour market in ways that he preferred just through that uh, through that sort of persistent communication. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's why I'm going to do it. Here's how it fits with liberal values. And so I think... You know, the, the, the things any successful leader has to do is firstly have an agenda, you know, have something to offer that responds to the challenges the community's facing, be able to discipline the party, carry the party with you, and above all, communicate to the public. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so even though they were very different performers, Howard and Keating were very good at that. And, and a really instructive ex- uh, comparison is, I think, Julia Gillard, Labor Prime Minister, first woman Prime Minister. She was in office for three years. She came in when a lot of the things that her predecessor, Kevin Rudd, had promised but hadn't worked through for various reasons um, she delivered on them she 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 got an emissions trading scheme up um, and her legislative record is better than any of her successes it's not better than Howard and those people and Walk and Keating but no one since has got as much stuff through Parliament because she was extremely good at working with people. She had strong support from the public service. She had a very devoted and loyal private office staff. The Secretary of Prime Minister and Cabinet at that time told me she was terrific. She was always on top of her brief. Why did it all go wrong? Well, one element I'm sure has been discussed elsewhere is about the sort of ferocious attacks on her and and the sort of misogynistic element of that. But the key thing was she'd been a lively speaker as deputy uh, prime minister, but as prime minister she she seemed wooden. She seemed unable to 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 get the message across. And when. Uh, she was leading a minority government, so she had to make concessions. She got the emissions training scheme up because she made compromises. Any 
as leader in a you know diverse as a society is going to have to make compromises. But Abbott and and some of the press said, "Look, she's turning, you know, turning her back on everything she promised," um, and she was never able to overcome that accusation uh, that that you know she wasn't doing what she'd said she would do. She was backtracking or doing something different because she didn't have the that sort of communicative ability that's now expected of, of prime ministers. And so But what about the criticism that this is superficial? We're assessing very complex state matters on the appearance or the smile of someone when they explained it to me. Yeah, I think it is more than that. We're assessing them, you know, on the word, on what they say. Yes, there's an element of, you know, talking about clothes and style and so on, but the key uh, attribute is communication. And I think Gillard, in other circumstances, could have been a great Prime Minister, and in the circumstances she faced, she achieved a remarkable amount, but she fell down on this communication. As, As Howard said... I knew when I became leader, much would depend upon me as, you know, as the voice of the party. And he set about making sure he had all the techniques for addressing that through talkback radio, rather than through the press, through having favoured media commentators that he worked with, uh, and and having behind him these sort of pollsting figures, Crosby, Texter and co., um, who were always checking how opinion was going and working out ways to address or shape the message. So communication really is, among the three things, having an agenda, having party discipline and communication. You've got to fire on all three of those. If you fall down on, you know, keeping the party together like Rudd did, you run into trouble. When we're looking at the the map of Australian politics across the states and the federal government, Labor seems to be the dominant force, where the only current Liberal government is seated in Tasmania. Uh, what what does that mean for for the Liberal Party today, and can it you know reestablish itself once again? Yeah, well, this brings us to. Another fairly complex um, set of issues. The main problem for both parties, but particularly for the Liberal Party, is demographic change. That really works against the sorts of things that they are accustomed to doing. If you look at the last Australian election study, you see exactly what the problem is. The Liberal Party, for, for instance, is holding older and conservative voters and and the National Party is continuing to hold up in the regions, but they're losing the major population centres because there are lots more younger voters who have for a long time had, you know, strong views about issues like the environment. They They are not persuaded by the sort of we'll manage the economy better argument because they are really economically disadvantaged. 
they're facing housing problems. We're an immigrant country, and so the sort of notion of sort of old white male dominance is is questionable because so many people are either born overseas or have parents who were born overseas and have different sort of cultural views and don't buy the sort of old lines about what our national identity means. And the Liberal Party in particular has been unable to to really deal with that, to cope with that. And so that election study showed where it was starting to bite, particularly, you know, to take the teals, younger uh, professional women taking off, taking over Liberal seats because the Liberal Party proper could not address the sort of philosophical issues, particularly to do with climate change, but also integrity and that sort of thing. They were behind the times. Why is the Labor Party doing better? Well, in some senses, it's not their primary vote, remember, it's not much better in the last federal election than it was um, than, than was that of the coalition, but they won the preference votes because the the preferences going to the liberals were from smaller, really fringe groups, um, whereas the preferences going to Labor were from the from inner city populations that of liberals haven't been able to win, um, and so. People may not have put Labor first, but when they looked at it, they said, well, they're promising economic change, they're promising to do something about housing, they're going to fix the immigration problems and the visa problems, uh, all things that matter to, you know, matter to businesses who employ migrant workers and all, that, all sorts of things. So they have done better on all of those fronts. And now they look like we're saying there'll be a consensus. It's very interesting because I'm looking at the first preference vote outcomes for last year's 2022 federal election. And the count shows that the first preference vote is actually in favour of the Liberal Party, Um, the the government, or at least the, the candidate that ultimately lost to the Albanese government so you see that they've, although they've had a, a larger base, also although Labor has had success in this second uh, in these preference votes where it all flows to them, their base, their political base, isn't so secure. And what appears to be the the, the failure of the Liberal Party is also a genuine concern for Labor. It is. I think it is a genuine concern for Labor. But the difference is that Labor appears to be trying to be a consensus government. That is, how can we bridge all these various groups and give them enough of what they want to keep these preferences flowing our way? So both parties are in the sort of low 30s in terms of their first preference votes. But our voting system is one, even though it's not like the... Uh, Scandinavian consensus democracies, preferential voting and compulsory voting does have this uh, effect that once you realise that the days of the mass party are past, that your base, like we talked about that earlier, your base is small and unrepresentative. 
then you have to try to find ways to bridge with other interests and other groups and and try to reach consensus positions. So you have to tailor policy platforms that will hopefully do that. doesn't mean it's easy. You know, the Labor continually battles with the crossbench and with the Greens, but they're there because most of the crossbench and the Greens, in a sense, were voted in on preferences because they had messages that Labor is now trying to address. The Liberal Party, take Tony Abbott. Remember some of the most astonishing things he did, like re-establishing knighthoods? They were, they were driven entirely by his guess, possibly accurate, about what the base wanted. But the base was this small, unrepresentative group. And what about the onion? Did he, who did he eat that yeah. for? <laughs> I don't, I, some idiosyncrasies. idiosyncrasies. The, the onion lobby? I, I don't know. Some of those idiosyncrasies were just his own, I think. Yeah. I think there is a, a growing, particularly in our generation, a growing aversion towards political engagement. It's seen as a bit of a, a fringe activity. And, and speaking with previous generations, we, you know, we hear about electoral campaigns being an almost civic activity. Like one may join a, a charity or a sports club joining a political party was a bit part of that. We seem increasingly distant from it and are uncomfortable with sometimes the more extreme behaviour we see from some political parties. It just doesn't really represent what many people want to be doing. Why do you think these parties have become... Well, I mean, just why do you think people have become so wary of political engagement today? One of the things that became clear that in in the early 2000s was that a lot of the people, particularly middle classes, felt that, you know, what we now call or did call neoliberalism wasn't working for them. There were a couple of surveys, one by Peter Saunders, who was at the um, University of New South Wales, working on poverty and doing commissioned work for the government on poverty, but uh, a survey showed that people, when they were asked, said the institutions of the past served us better than the institutions of the present. Trust in political parties has been sliding since the late 20th century because there was this growing sense that um, you know, political elites were pushing an agenda that did increase prosperity uh, and so economically it made sense, but it didn't sufficiently address the question of relative equity. It wasn't that everybody had to be, you know, equal, but the redistribution of that growing prosperity uh, increasingly favoured some over others. And already in the early 2000s, people were saying these institutions are not serving us. And it got to a stage in some of those Australian election studies later on where people were saying, you know, the politicians are out for themselves. We don't accept that they're doing it for for us. And I think that became even more intense during, particularly during the Pitt and the Morrison government period, where there was so much disquiet about what was being done. We could go back to talking about why Morrison won the 2019 19 election, which is a different question, but 
in the end, the Morrison brand by 2022 was a drag on the Liberal Party vote, and trust was sort of had a but again, had why, an why is it? Why is there this growing distrust with politicians and the political institutions? Because they're not delivering. Is it just? Is I mean, it just they're not delivering? I yeah. mean, were they were they delivering at one hundred percent before? No, I think there's a distinction between. I'm trying to be even-handed here, but Howard had, for instance, Howard had an agenda. As he, as I said before, people knew what it was. Um, he did what he promised to do. Rudd and Gillard certainly had an agenda. Rudd failed not because he didn't have big ambitions and tell us what they were, but because he he couldn't work with the party. He couldn't work with the caucus. He, everything had to come through him. Um, a real failure of leadership is when leaders think that they are the centre of everything. Any leader... A political party or anything else has to be an orchestrator of many other people who can do all the things that need to be done. That wasn't Rudd's gift. He was an, you know, he was imaginative. He was articulate. Um, he he had big ambitions, but he couldn't deliver. And when he walked away from the climate agreement uh, because he couldn't get consensus around what he wanted at a time when people were worried about climate change they walked away from him Gillard I've talked about, she did deliver, she had an agenda, she delivered but she couldn't communicate, she was constantly being accused of compromising their principles and so on because she had to, she had to negotiate outcomes with her in a minority government which meant things had to be massaged and changed so you had sort of system issues then. Habit had no agenda to speak of, really. And the coalition then went on from there. Turnbull comes in. Turnbull makes promises that attract people because they're more progressive. They sort of try to put the Abbott, let's attack everything Labor did, approach behind. But on the signature policy issues in the end, the National Energy Guarantee was a tragedy. What was that guarantee? I'm, I'm not sure. The National Energy Guarantee was an attempt to set up a process that would constrain, you know, energy prices while and and meet some of the targets of that are, that are needed, you know, to address climate change. And um, I mean. The essence of the guarantee is that we'll change the system for the better. We'll have, you know, snowy hydro, we'll have more renewables, energy will be produced at a lower cost, that's the benefit to you, and at the same time we will start addressing the issues of climate change. Well, that was the undoing of it. He and and Frydenberg, I think, did, and with a public service, I might add, you know, knowing this was a difficult area for their party, did an amazing amount to try and get this over the line. But in the end, it was precisely the trigger that was needed for Abbott and others like him to attack Turnbull. And so, you know, we have finally... His authority rests on getting this legislation through. When he finally gets up in 
Parliament first gets up in the press and says, we can't deliver this. It's it's on for young and old. He's, he's lost all authority because he pinned everything on this big objective. And so they went for it and challenged. And, of course, we know what happened. Morrison manoeuvred through the middle and took, took the reins. You studied intensively the history of ideas and how they've, they've grown over time. Would you say that it's the ideas that make change or rather changes that happen in the environment that then subsequently create new ideas? I think what happens is, I mean, it's a fairly, a fairly well-accepted uh, principle in public policy that you have periods where there is relative stability. People agree, even bipartisan agreement across some things, and they, and they work for a period. In the 1940s, following the war and the Depression, both sides accepted the sort of John Keynes argument about how do we rebuild, reconstruct after the war and manage econ- you know, growth of a prosperous economy. And they accepted the sort of Keynesian notion that there had to be collaboration between private investment and government and that when you know, markets were creating difficulties, sometimes public investment, public investment would would sort of balance things and keep things stable. And that worked pretty well between 45 and the mid-70s. And then it was disrupted by other things, the oil shocks of the early 70s, all of the stagflation, stagflation period, yeah, the, the uh, link between growing inflation and increasing wages, uh, which they didn't seem to be able to break. And so as early as 1971, the Federal Treasury was saying, we've got to go back to classical economics. We've got to move away from this sort of Keynesian position. Who started to do that? Billy McMahon. This is largely forgotten. But, well, for those who don't realise, McMahon was a uh, Liberal Prime Minister the third successor to Menzies, there had been Harold Holt and John Gorton and McMahon. And, you know, the policy world was changing. They hadn't really changed with the times, although they were starting to... Menzies had been, in a sense, a block on progressive change as a multicultural society was starting to emerge as a result of post-war immigration. He was still insisting that, you know, we were British to the bootstraps and really blocking some of the things that even in his own party people wanted to do. Holt, Gordon and McMahon all, in a sense, tried to start doing some of those things. The multiculturalism for which Whitlam and Fraser get the credit actually starts in the Holt period. The changes to Indigenous policy, you know, that led to land rights, they too start under Holt, even though... They get a, a boost under Whitlock. The ground was always, already moving before they decided to replace the foundations. Yeah. Mm. So that equilibrium gets disrupted because of social change. In late 70s, after the Whitlam period, well, it's all starting to go wrong. McMahon lost the election. Whitlam came in with much the same notion that, you know, the problem wasn't one of restraint, it was how to spend money. You know, big housing programs, all of these sorts of things, at a time when the global economy had swung against that. 
and Treasury was saying, we can't afford to do these things. And so there's a disequilibrium there. Fraser comes in and says he will be a much more focused economic manager. He's seen as a villain by the left, but in fact he's still pretty much from the you know, Menzi onward period, you know, in many respects, small L liberal. Um, he doesn't go as far as people in his party wanted in being, you know, much more radical about uh, economic policy. And so it falls to Labor. So Labor comes in and Labor is the one that starts this move towards market solutions, you know. Instead of saying governments will solve problems you know, where there's an issue is not being addressed elsewhere, governments will solve problems. There was a turn towards markets, but through the accord and through the uh, what was called the social wage, they managed to do it with a, with a sort of still a commitment to um, supporting, you know, the people who are going to be worst affected. Keating's 1994... A working Nation paper, almost a, a, a bookend to the 1945 white paper on employment. It was an attempt to say we are doing, we are going to make these big economic changes, but we're putting in place supports, training schemes, and so on that will you know that will help those who are disadvantaged in this transition ideas can only be sustained in a current society uh, well they they get sustained until the decision makers decide that they're not working what would you what would you regard as the the key um the central ideas to the current political dialogue today what i think is fairly clear in both what albanese has said and particularly what Chalmers, Jim Chalmers has said, is that they're trying to they're trying to acknowledge that the sort of neoliberal policy world is is behind us. That there has to be a different approach. And so, Jim Chalmers in February this year wrote a long essay on I've forgotten the exact title, but it was a it was an essay in the Monthly about a values led government and a values-led approach to economic policy making. And so they're attempting to both encourage business growth and productivity after the pandemic on the one hand and asking themselves, what do we have to do to achieve that? But on the other, they're saying, we can't afford to leave people behind. We have to address issues of disadvantage and so on. Softening the, the the hardness of capitalism. Yes, and it's a big ask because the problems now are very significant. I think most people accept that sort of neoliberal idea that somehow markets will solve things has to be reconsidered. We've and and the other thing that's happened is that a lot of policy. Um, advice and so on has been outsourced because some people were deluded enough to think that you know private sector agencies could do it better than the public sector, and it led to things like the current Price Waterhouse Coopers fiasco, to the robo debt scandal, and so on. So the people, the the, the, the electorate knows that, that there's real problems. Uh, so Chalmers has, for instance, an employment paper 
Working Party. They had a Jobs and Skills Summit. They're now working on this paper, which I believe is due to be delivered in September this year. And if you go and look at the objectives, uh, it's very clear about a sequence of objectives. And on the one hand, they're all aimed at boosting business and boosting productivity, but on the other, at stabilising the labour market and looking after the disadvantaged and there's particular emphasis on, on women, you know, the, the female wage and that sort of thing. Um, from the website, it's speaking of an overarching focus on full employment, uh, productivity, uh, and improving women's economic participation and equality. So coming back to our question, would you regard these, well, these non-economic goals, economic participation, uh, gender equality in, in, the, in the workplace, and the economy as being the new values that are meant to soften the kind of hard function of neoliberal capitalism. Yeah, that's certainly, um, I think that's very much the intention. And, you know, in an ideal world, they might be able to pull it off. I think the big difficulty for them now is that for reasons that partly things that were left undone by the previous government but also global factors. Uh, I think we mentioned before the war in Ukraine, the damage to supply lines, you know, the rising costs of all sorts of things that feed into inflation. These are things that they haven't created, but they're going to be held even where they're from global changes that are not really within the control of a national government. They nonetheless have to try and somehow address those things. You know, I think it's a it's a big task. It's a it's a difficult task and you can see how they're attempting to do it. The other thing, having said earlier, that been this these scandals about PWC and RoboDebt and sports rots and all sorts of things. They're also very clearly saying that they have to rebuild the public service, that they need to move away from this outsourcing to private sector agencies. So on all sides, there is a sort of questioning of what was for a long time the accepted policy paradigm that governments would steer, not row, meaning the markets would look after the sort of the rowing, getting things moving and governments would try where they could through policy to, to set objectives, but they wouldn't themselves be doing that. Uh, so, you know, job networks were created, but all tasks of training and people, putting people into jobs were outsourced to private sector agencies. Those sorts of things now are very much in question. So we are, I think, at a very significant transition point where what was a stable policy that framework for a long period has come into question and they're now trying to establish a new set of principles, a new framework. If it works, they'll probably win government again and if they're there long enough, they will be able to implement much of what they are promising and uh, it will form the, new, you know, the next phase of the policy debate. If it doesn't work, and there's a good chance that these big global factors of economic change and technological change and so on um, will be a real problem, uh, then I think we're in for a turbulent time. This transitionary period is one that's building away from 
a consensus of neoliberalism. And, and that's a term we hear a lot, uh, but I think like a lot of these big terms with capitals, uh, there tends to be an unclear meaning. So for the audience, how would you describe neoliberalism and maybe give a bit of a, a brief about its, its history within public policy in Australia and across the world? It, ca- it came from the last big transitional period, which, which was the 70s and 80s. The period when it was felt that with stagflation, which we've mentioned, had had emerged, where there were global shocks like the oil shock shocks of the early seventies, where the sorts of things that governments had been able to do in the Keynesian sort of era no longer seemed to be working. And the term was sometimes described at the time as governments are trying to do too much. Instead of governments being as active as they had been, governments should steer rather than row. The rowing will be done by you know the private sector, by the markets. And well encapsulated by Reagan's joke, the worst sentence in the in the English language is, "I'm from the government, and I'm here to help you." Yes. Yes, and of course, um, Kevin Rudd reversed that. Reagan saying this in the in the late seventies, early eighties. Kevin Rudd basically did say, "I'm Kevin, and I'm here to help." <laughs> so, so, and uh, and in uh, you know, a in a whole Kevin O seven uh, campaign was, um, "I'm here to help." But anyway, so steering not not rowing, and the notion that markets, really, if if we use regulation rather than participation, markets will solve these problems better than public interventions and so on, and particularly private capital and private investment driven by consumer choice is a much more sensible allocation of resources and public investment. And so that's turning away from the Keynesian approach. And I said earlier that it starts really during the Whitlam period. It's still, it's being pushed hard by some in the Fraser period. Malcolm Fraser, Liberal Prime Minister from 1975 to 1983. But he was reluctant to go as far as, you know, the neoliberals wanted him to do. And he was often blamed after for not having done enough. There was a surprising sort of interchange between some in the Liberal Party with some in the Labor Party um, about what do we do now. And it, it was through that sort of fusion, I can actually name names, Jim Cameron, for example, in the Labor, in the Liberal Party, a minister in the Fraser government, once told me, you know, we were always having to hammer Malcolm to try and get him to do what needed to be done. And I completely endorsed, in particular, what John Dawkins did once Labor got into power. And then, of course, Keating uh, becomes more and more significant. And Keating is, is you know, the whiz cue at selling this message. So that's, that's that transition. And it carries through. Howard takes it even further in some respects. But even by the early... 2000s people were, as I, as I mentioned earlier, people were starting to say this prosperity was growing. So, you know, it was doing what was, was said was the uh, objective. 
but it wasn't being shared in in sort of in reasonable ways. People were saying this isn't working for us, and uh, many people thought the global financial crisis was going to be the end of neoliberalism. In fact, it took a lot longer <laughs> because nobody really came up with a new idea. You know, the issue is you have to have you have to have someone saying, okay, here's the new guiding principle. And there wasn't one. People were saying, you know, in the 70s and 80s, Treasury, for example, said, we've got to return to classical economics. And then they said, well, what about these ideas from from the people who'd always opposed Keynes? And there was a body of sort of theory and philosophy that Jim Carlton referred to, talked about trying to push Fraser to do more radical things. There hasn't really been a sort of equally coherent set of ideas yet these things take time. They don't happen overnight. For instance, after the 1930s depression, people thought then this, you know, this is disastrous what we do. Keynes theory comes out in 1936, but it's not really until the war and post-war reconstruction and, and, the, and the people who are planning post-war reconstruction, not only in Australia, but in in Britain, uh, for example, in Britain there was the Beveridge Report on on uh, on employment. In Australia there was Coombs and the people in post-war reconstruction and their report on on employment. So, and they were all drawing in one way or another on Keynes. We're still gliding ideologically on our political scene without without really an engine pushing it. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm just. Well, what all I'm saying is these transitions are lengthy affairs and we're, I think, still in the middle of this transition away from the sort of neoliberal framework that has dominated for so long. And probably, you know, the Albanese government is the first first one that's sort of seriously tried to sort of change the paradigm and we don't yet know whether they'll be able to do it. The current um, Labour opposition in the United Kingdom in England, where, and this is the one led by Keir Starmer, that they're very much slated to win the next election. However, their current presentation and messaging seems to really be about criticizing the current conservative government and not about presenting a positive ideal, not just saying, let's not do like them. And here are our ideas. It's simply, let's just not do like them. I th- yeah, I think, too, the problem that the British Labor government faces is that they've had to, they felt that they had to s- sort of say Brexit was a disaster, but they had, it was so clear that Brexit led to Johnson's wins that they felt they had to go along with it, and so they didn't tack it as, as much as they could. So they're, they're sort of caught between wondering how many of the levers are still out there and how many remainers, you know, how do they deal with that? They can't, they can't immediately say it was a huge mistake to cut ourselves off from the European market. Let's, you know, try and restore that because the people have, you know, had, have voted against it. That was a paradigm shift to the you know, Brexit. It was a crazy thing to do. It's had all of the things that have happened in terms of 
the deterioration in the British economy were predicted, particularly by the civil service, before Brexit happened. And yet, you know, the populist minority managed to... Remember Britain say they, they don't have preferential voting. And first-past-the-post voting. You get aggregations of someone who wins 34% of the vote and they get up. And so they end up having a government that's peopled by, you know, arguably a good deal less or supported by a good deal less than 50% of the population or or even... Um, and they don't have compulsory voting and, and we know that the people who are most affected by government's decisions or failures to make decisions are the disadvantaged and, and they're the least likely to go out and vote in a system like that. So they're that. even less representative than Australian, the Australian electoral process simply because they don't have that preferential voting. Yes, law. yeah. So all of those things are very different there and fortunately we don't have quite the same uh, problems here. But I think the Labor Party there is in a very difficult position because... They can't now say Brexit was a huge mistake, we're going to undo it. Uh, it's, it's, it's sort of done, and they have to somehow deal with it. The bigger word uh, that, that's really emerged ever since the, the Brexit vote and the election of Trump has been populism. Yes, yeah. Is this still a... How do you view it? Because sometimes, you know, and I've brought this up with, with previous guests asking whether... Is populism just a new set of ideas that's popular that, you know, maybe a lot of people don't agree with? Or is it simply something that's incredibly corrosive to, to democracy? Well, I think, A, it's not a new idea. It's been around for a, a long time. But populism in itself is not an idea. It's a way of bringing ideas, isn't is it not? Well, it's, a, it's an, an approach. It's an approach that's taken by... A leader who who manages to somehow strike a chord with people who feel they have been hard done by or haven't been heard. The system is not working for them. And hence, some leaders have the capacity to tap into that and say, I speak for the people. So populism is really saying, I am representative of the people. But it's corrosive because it's usually, while it says it's against elites, you know, the elites who haven't been taking care of us or haven't been taking notice of us, it always ends up being incredibly divisive and attacking the institutions that actually make democracy work. You know, our, our parliamentary systems and our policy development systems and so on are institutional things that have take that have developed over a long period. If you set out to say all of that's wrong, you get the, the Trump triggered attack on the Capitol building. You come out and say, We actually won this election, it's all lies. Well go down and stop the certification of the vote, which is what they said they were doing. And you get these sort of extreme views aggregated and then acted upon in ways that are profoundly damaging to the institutions that ideally are where consensus decisions or relatively consensus decisions get worked out. 
if parliaments and congresses are working properly, they are a way of you know, representatives from diverse views coming together and having to work collectively to try and reach agreement on what to do now. And that sort of populist thing, um, the populist approach doesn't, doesn't do that. It just says, it's all wrong, we're going to attack it. But, you know, what comes after? Uh, well, we know in the past what came after in some places was autocracies and dictators uh, where parliaments and police and everything else are now in the control of you know these extreme figures rather than being places of popular assembly. So you're describing these elements of populism as one being a kind of speaking to a, a silent majority, let's say. And well, it's not a silent but, majority. It's usually a, a, a silent, very small minority. Right. Uh, a silent uh, minority. Uh, but most importantly, uh, the, 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 the kind of criticisms of the institutions lead to a serious corrosion of the trust in the system, which can ultimately uh, shaken it and topple it over, ultimately. Hmm. But there's two elements within this we're talking about which do seem to be recurring within politics. I mean, albeit, yes, it's a silent majority, but, you know, we've spoken about the, the, maybe the charisma and the, the, the political success of certain leaders as speaking to a group that was previously disaffected. And we do speak, we've spoken about how increasingly political parties are isolated from the majority of Australians. So this is something we can, we can identify. And secondly, there is growing mistrust uh, within political institutions and politicians, particularly, as, as we've discussed, because, well, as you've said, they're, they're no longer performing. They're not delivering what they promise. So are those not legitimate grounds for maybe the, the complaint that, that leads to the success of populist movements today? They're certainly... Um, they're certainly... Uh, issues that do favour the emergence of, you know, splinter groups, frag fragmentation. Um, uh, in Australia, we're, as I've said before, we're, we're protected to some extent by uh, preferential voting and compulsory voting. So we are going to see these groups on both the left and the right, and it is hard now to to bridge those things. But we are not in a system where 30% of the people can determine who, 34%, let's say, can determine who's in power. We are in a system where you, you might have a 32% or whatever of the primary vote, but you have to garner enough of the other votes. In other words, people saying, well, that's not my first preference, but I'm prepared to back this lot because they're the least worst, let's say. So you have to build majorities. And I think that the thing we should be asking at the moment is, is Albanese and the Labor government, are they now actually going to deliver a sort of a form of consensus politics? That is, are they able to, they can't win by just, speaking to the base, nor can the Liberals. 
So how do they continue to successfully bridge the other groups that they need to be backing them? Part of that is in what they do in Parliament with the crossbench and and the minor parties. But part of it is the way they try and sell the message. They can't afford to be seen to only delivering for particular groups. And the other thing is that Albanese is not a is not a leader who, like some others in the past, thinks everything has to depend on him. He is working with a team. We know, you know, Penny Wong will do this, Jim Chalmers will do that, Penny Wong will do something. You know, they've all got responsibilities. And he, like Hawke did, he lets them get on with their responsibilities. So it's distributed leadership. It's not all about I'm the boss. It's distributed leadership. And any successful leader has to be now, particularly now, has to be capable of that sort of distributed leadership. I'm orchestrating, you know, the band. (laughs) I'm not, it's not all me. It's not all about me and what happens in my office and so The voice uh, to Parliament. How do you view that that current referendum? Uh, do you think it will be successful? What does it mean, and what does it, its actual proposal mean about the ideas within Australian political dialogue today? Uh, I think Albanese's commitment to the voice, you know, made on the night of the election, was a very was a brave, you know, as Sir Humphrey would have said, a very brave commitment. I think a lot of the conditions that facilitated the 1967 referendum, which was about having Aborigines recognised for the census and so on, but in a sense being properly recognised as citizens, the conditions that facilitated that are no longer present. Everything then depended really on the, on the conventional media. There was very widespread support in the parties, so it was bipartisan. Most referenda don't succeed unless they're bipartisan. It's interesting when you look back that there was no no campaign launched. There was so, there was so much consensus within the parliament itself that they didn't even put up a no case. What do we what do we see today? Where we have Albanese and what you might regard as being. Uh, you know, a form of Aboriginal Indigenous intelligentsia arguing on, I think, quite clearly stated grounds for a voice for Indigenous people. On the other hand, there's clearly no bipartisanship and you've got Dutton taking an even more extreme position than the National Party. The National Party was the first to come out and say they'd be voting no, but they have not agreed with him when he said the voice would re-racialise the country. Uh, there's been pretty active campaigns of disinformation. The latest figures I've seen show that the no campaigners are very have been so far very much more active on social media than the yes campaign. There's a degree of vilification that simply wasn't there. That veil of civilised discourse earlier, that's not there. Uh, the, that's, so there's already been 
you know, we'd seen governments now having to make arrangements for support, mental health support and other, other things for Indigenous community. Um, the Indigenous community itself is, to some extent, well, let's not say split, but there are people who uh, identify as being Indigenous Australians who are opposing the voice or have been persuaded to oppose it. And yet I think you've got figures who've been around for a long time who uh, I think sensibly arguing what needs to be done, like Marcia Langton and Noel Pearson and Megan Davis especially. They did consult across the Indigenous communities that you know, the notion that it was a Canberra voice is just nonsense. Um, and you've got younger, uh, really impressive Indigenous figures um, who are acting for the voice. But I think the, the divis- divisiveness that's starting to emerge and the social media movements which are trying to sort of drive people back down into sort of familiar rabbit holes or echo chambers or whatever we call them um, is, 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 is going to make things fairly difficult. You know, the, the, the general polls were supportive um, and strongly supportive at the start. And we've seen them sliding. There's still majority support, but whether it can be a, the double majority, that is a majority overall and a majority and a majority of states, is, is an open question. And since Albanese has made... Both leaders have made a big gamble. Albanese has made a big gamble because... He is saying here is the moment for consensus and consensus politics for addressing a historical wrong. Whereas Dutton's made a big gamble by saying, no, no, it's going to tear down things as we know it. It's going to re-racialise society. And so this disparity is... I mean, that, that sort of disparity has defeated referendums in the past. So it's it's looking, I think, difficult. Can they pull it around? Can the Yes campaign address all these somewhat, sometimes spurious allegations that are being made by the people opposing opposing it? I think, I don't know. You know, there's several months... Now to go, we can only wait and see. James, thank you very much for attending today. I greatly appreciate your insight into Australian politics, ideas, and leadership. So thank you very much. Thanks here. You're welcome.